In this first session, we're moving from Joshua, who is usually dated around 1240 BC, and the initial conquest of the land of Canaan, to the full development of Israel as a monarchy under King David, who is, again, usually dated around 1000. That's the easiest date to remember in the, in the Old Testament, around 1000 BC, David's reign. That, of course, is the peak of achievement in many ways. The reign of David and Solomon after him is the golden age of Israel. But as we shall see, this um, whole area of scripture is a roller coaster ride. We plumb some depths and we climb to some heights. Now, the unifying theme that runs through this uh, section from Joshua to David is the theme of the promised land, usually called Canaan in the Old Testament, an area that was eventually occupied by Israel of around 25,500 square kilometers. If you can imagine what that means, you're a better man than I am, but that's what all the books tell us. However, I've put at the top of the sheet that there are three things we need to remember about the land. Firstly, that it is the land of blessing. Remember last night we looked at Deuteronomy at the end, how God promised great blessings to an obedient people. And just reading Deuteronomy 7.13, Moses tells them that if you pay attention to God's laws and follow them, verse 13, he will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He'll bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, in the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. And uh, those great promises are all land promises. Away from the land of bondage, all the diseases of the Egyptians, to the land of promise, the land of blessing that God has prepared for his people. It's uh, therefore, secondly, the land of promise because it depends upon a faithful God to give it to them. And last night I mentioned that the Lord in capital letters, Yahweh or Jehovah as we sometimes put it in English, means the God who makes and keeps his promises. The God whom you can rely upon. Uh, he's the one who promised to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you the land. He promised you that it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. And God is in the business of keeping his promises. So thirdly, it will be a land of rest. Not only rest from the 40 years in the desert, uh, the wilderness wanderings, but rest in emulation of God's rest. After his work in creation, God rested the seventh day. It is the rest of fellowship, the rest of enjoying a relationship with the living God. But the emphasis on those uh, descriptions of the land is all upon what God will do, how he will bless, how he will keep his promise, how he will bring them into the land of rest, but obedience is required. And that's a very strong note in Deuteronomy, which we just touched on last night, and it's a very important prelude to the book of Joshua. If they are going to enter the land, they must be obedient people. Lots of references to look up there. Because obedience is the way that covenant people enjoy fellowship with God. Obedience keeps the channels open for God's blessing to flow into our lives. And therefore, they not only required obedience, firstly, to enter the land, but secondly, to enjoy the blessings of the land. If you follow me, says God, then these blessings will be yours. But if you reject me, then the curses of the last chapters of Deuteronomy will fall upon them. Well, that's the scene when we turn to the book of Joshua. 
And this exciting book is uh, one that deals with the story of how the land of Canaan was occupied, the conquest of the land under the leadership of God through his servant Joshua. I think the key verse is uh, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, God says to Joshua, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. So don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Speak it, meditate on it, obey it. The conquest of the land, then, is the fruit of that obedience. It's an exercise of trust and obedience to God. And Joshua's life covers the period from the Exodus to the conquest. He was, of course, Moses' right-hand man, designated a good deal earlier to be his successor because he was one of the two spies in Numbers 14 who brought back a faithful report about the land of promise. And uh, therefore God uh, decreed that both of them, Joshua and Caleb, would enter the land. Though those, of course, who could only see the difficulties and brought back a pessimistic report and caused the people to grumble against God, condemned themselves to die in the desert. But you may remember the little Sunday school rhyme. I was taught it at Sunday school anyway. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were the only two who ever got through to the land of milk and honey. Well, it was God's providence and God's faithfulness that brought them through. So the story of Joshua and the lesser story of Caleb is a story of God's faithfulness to them. Now, I've just put under A the main sections of the first half of the book, which we could call How the Land Was Conquered. How the Land Was Conquered, that's section A. If you look down the page, two-thirds of the way down to section B, that is How the Land Was Divided. How the Land Was Conquered, How the Land Was Divided, And section C, how Joshua saw things, because 23 and 24 are his summary at the end of his life about what is important, what he's learnt, and the way that they're to go. So let's just briefly fill in some of the details. The land was conquered by God, not by Israel. At the very beginning of this new era, there is the shift from Moses as the channel of God's revelation. Moses, you remember, spoke with God face to face. From that to the written law, to the book of the law, 1.8, Joshua, the Pentateuch, that is, the five books of Moses, or certainly the written law part of it, if not the whole Pentateuch, this was to be the uh, controlling um, and guiding influence in Joshua's thinking. Uh, He did have an appearance of the Lord to him, as we shall see in a moment, and he constantly sought God's face and God's wisdom, But there is now a declaration of the character of God in the words of the law, which they must go back to. So right from the beginning, they are commended to this book of the law. Don't let it depart from you. We just read in Luke 24 how Jesus interpreted all the scriptures about himself. And even the risen Lord, you see, took his people to the book of the law. He took those early disciples right back to what has been said about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, Luke 24 says a little later on. He never uh, said to them, you don't need that now. He took them that route to understand who he was. The centrality of scripture is made by that point. Chapters 1 to 4, then, are the preliminary plans. You remember how they send spies to Jericho. Rahab, the prostitute, receives them into her home, and she is saved. 
as a result, and how, as Jericho uh, is about to be besieged, um, the people are aware of the power of this God who has brought these people out of Egypt and who is bringing them into the land of Canaan. There is a very important ingredient of the preparation in chapter 4, where they have to purify themselves before they cross the River Jordan. The crossing of the Red Sea, if you like, finalized the exodus. The crossing of the River Jordan opens up the conquest. So chapter 4, verse 23, The Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you'd crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he'd done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we'd crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you, his people, might always fear the Lord your God. So it's God who's doing the work. Their part is to be obedient. Firstly, then, chapters five, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, they must be obedient in preparing themselves through the renewal of the circumcision uh, of those who had not been circumcised in the desert and by the celebration of the Passover. That's chapter Five, the covenant signs are renewed before they enter the land. Then there is the divine appearance of the captain of the army of the Lord to Joshua. Um, you remember how Joshua is pondering in verse 13 of chapter 5 how they are going to take Jericho. And suddenly he looks up and sees a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord I've come. Joshua, recognizing this as an appearance of the Lord to him, says, What message does my Lord have for his servant? Take off your sandals. The place whereon you are standing is holy. Compare Moses chapter 3 of Exodus. And Joshua did so. Then he gets his instructions about the way in which Jericho is to be taken, not by might of arms, but by obedience. Marching round the city uh, and uh, shouting uh, in praise and glory to God as um, they expect God to deliver the city to them. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the very opening uh, event in the conquest, and Jericho of course, stands just across the Jordan uh, at the very entrance to the promised land. That very event is achieved through obedience to God's plan. That's what the people are being taught. Therefore, 7 uh, and 8, the next section, are, if you like, a mirror image of the opposite of that. They are an image of failure through disobedience. You remember the story of how they take Jericho, but they can't take the city of Ai because of Achan's disobedience to God in taking some of the um, spoil from Jericho for himself and, uh, in that way, bringing sin into the camp. So you've got a great example of obedience and blessing and a great example of disobedience and defeat at the very beginning of the story. However, in the grace of God, they move beyond that disobedience, though judgment falls upon Achan and his family. And uh, we have a consolidation and a renewal of the covenant in chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. Having entered the land now and having made the initial conquest, they stand back, as it were. They are read the book of the law. Uh, an altar is built, and they renew their covenant commitment to God. There before the mountain Gerizim and the mountain Ebal, the witnesses are called. The mountains themselves witness to the fact that God is going to bless his people and that they are going to be obedient. Then you have details in 9.1 to 10.43 of the 
southern campaign. They've come into the land midway at Jericho. They fan south, first of all, and conquer various cities and areas there. And then in 11 and 12, you have the details of the northern campaign and a list of the defeated kings uh, whose city-states they took and uh, whose land they began to occupy. It really is the most extraordinary story of conquest. I think because we're so used to it, we fail to realize what an amazing action of God this was in providing this land for his people. Now, some people have problems with the conquest. Uh, we also have to realize that back in the Pentateuch, they're told that they will not be able to occupy the land until the sin of the people of the land has reached its fullness and what that means, I think, is that there came the point at which this was an action of judgment by God against the appalling practices that seem to have been endemic in Canaanite religion. It was, in one sense, God's judgment on all of that sinfulness and the rejection of the residual knowledge of God that still was there. But it is also an action of, of amazing grace for Israel in providing them a land that they have not planted or sown and cities that they have not built as the gift of God to them. So that's how the land was conquered. Of course, it wasn't completely conquered, as we shall see in a moment or two, but a great deal of it did come under their control, and more of it could have done if their obedience had been complete. Then we have, secondly, how the land was divided. We won't uh, stay on that, except to notice that all the allotted land uh, is parceled out amongst the tribes. There are special places for Caleb and for Joshua, the faithful men from the past. There are cities of refuge in chapter 12 and cities of the Levites, sorry, chapter 20, and cities of the Levites in chapter 21, and a great deal of detail about how it all worked out. But theologically, the summary is in chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he'd sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, as he'd sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Now, that inclusive language, that very strong repetition of all, every, is meant to say to us, you can rely on this God. He can do these things. He's promised he'll do it. If he said he'll do it, he will do it. It is as, un it is as likely that God will break his promises as that a stream will flow uphill. God is sovereign in performing his will. Trust him. That's the message of the conquest. And that's why Joshua, in his summary speech, in uh, 23 and 24, as they renew the covenant in chapter 24, probably this happened about 20 years later, focuses on those ingredients. There was no single successor to Joshua as he had succeeded Moses, but the book ends with the covenant renewal ceremony which rehearses the faithfulness of God. Chapter 24, Joshua said to the people, verse 2, this is what God said long ago. He goes back to the promise to Abraham. He shows them how it was fulfilled in the Exodus. He reminds them of the enemies that they've conquered of the conquest that God has given them over the people of Canaan. Now he says, verse 14, Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. See, it seems as though those residual gods were still there. They'd still got them in their kit bag. Get rid of them, he says, because Yahweh has proved himself to be the sovereign, the supreme God. 
And therefore, from verse 14 to 27, he exhorts them to be a faithful, obedient community. And they say, we will serve the Lord. But Joshua, in verse 19, knowing their hearts and knowing the fallibility of human nature, says, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. But they said, no, we will serve him. So he says, well, then we need witnesses to confirm that. You're committing yourself to him. Verse 25, on that day he made a covenant, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. Well, the covenant renewal ceremony then, at the bottom of the page, rehearses God's faithfulness and demands Israel's faithfulness. It reminds them that God is to be trusted. It poses the question, can you be trusted with the land that God has given you? Will you be obedient? Will you follow his commands? Over the page, two study lines in Joshua before we leave the book. One is the line of the word of God as the means of advance. Under D1 at the top of the next page, you'll see several references. And if you chase them yourself, you'll see that they're a theme that runs through the book, that the way forward is through the word of God. That's the primary means of the people's advance. It's the word of the Lord that opens up the way for the people of the Lord. And another great theme uh, that's worth studying is that faith and obedience are the way to victory. The word of God is given, but it has to be obeyed, trusted. And therefore, uh, Joshua himself is an example of one to whom God's word came and he had to obey it, even though he may have found it difficult. Actually, you can chase references to Joshua in a concordance in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua, Uh, in its opening chapters, and you'll find that several times uh, it is said, encourage Joshua. We tend to think of these great Old Testament heroes as super people, don't we? Supermen. They didn't have the problems we have. But actually, it keeps on saying about Joshua, encourage him. God keeps on saying to him, be strong and of good courage. Because he wasn't probably naturally like that at all. God loves to take weak vessels, doesn't he, and to make them strong. He loves to take things that are not to put to naught the things that are. That's what happened with Israel overtaking the Canaanites. And Joshua is a living example of the faith and obedience that opened the way to victory. So when you get to the end of the book of Joshua, there is a tremendous optimism, a great joy at all that God has done. They've possessed the land and everything is now theirs. But Judges 1.1 says, after the death of Joshua, Joshua 1.1 says after the death of Moses, Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? This is the remaining conquest of the land. At this point, it was incomplete. There was still more work to do. And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I've given the land into their hands. But sadly, the times are changing. Whereas in Joshua, chapter 24, verse 16, we are told the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. When you get to Judges, chapter 2 and verse 7, you read that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who'd seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But verse 10, after the whole generation, that whole generation had been gathered to their forefathers Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So 
we are back into this situation of what I call the spiral of decline. And this passage, Judges 2, 11 to 17, is really the key to the whole book because it gives us the pattern that we see being fulfilled again and again through this period of time, around 1220 to 1050 BC. See, it starts with idolatry, verse 11. They serve the Baals. They forsook the Lord, verse 12. The God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods, pluralism, syncretism. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him. That's the first step. That is followed, verse 14, by the anger of the Lord in action. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he'd sworn to them. They were in great distress. There is stage two, you see. Idolatry, judgment. But stage three, verse 16, grace. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And stage four, prosperity, salvation. He saved them out of the hands of the raiders, yet they wouldn't listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them as long as the judge lived. Verse 19, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt. So we have a circle, idolatry, judgment, grace, raising up a great judge, salvation, more idolatry, more judgment. And not only is it a circle, but it's a spiral, you see, it gets deeper. They did it even more, even worse each time. So the book of Judges is a depressing book from that point of view, because it contains the record of human sinfulness yet again, and the fact that there seems to be no way of overcoming it. Yes, God raises up these judges, uh, events which you can call under 2A there, mini-salvations, if you like, heroic saviors who were raised up by God to do a particular job at a particular time. And uh, you will remember some of them. Othniel is the first one in chapter 3. Then Ehud, the left-handed one, you remember, who dispatched King Eglon in no uncertain manner. Uh, if you don't know that story, it's a very good story to read but choose your moment to read it, not immediately after lunch. Um, Shamgar, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Uh, and then in chapter 4, Deborah, the female judge, raised up and uh, uh, prompting Barak, the rather reluctant military leader, to trust in God and to go forward in his name. And then the famous story of Gideon in chapter 6 to 8. Two more judges in 10, 1 to 5, Tola and Jair, T-O-L-A, and J-A-I-R, and then the story of Jephthah, the judge of Israel who sacrificed his daughter because he'd vowed to make a sacrifice to God of the first thing he saw when he came home after his victory. Extraordinary story of tragedy. Three more judges in 12, 8 to 15, about whom we know very little, Ibzan, I-B-Z-A-N, Elon, E-L-O-N, and Abdon, A-B-D-O-N. Not exactly famous, uh, in our thinking, but people who in their generation served the Lord. And then perhaps the most flawed of all the judges, Samson, in chapters 13 to 16, with his great victory over the Philistines, and yet his great defeat to his own moral weakness. 
Now, what are all these stories about? Well, they're all illustrative of those downward spirals and of the effect that they had. And in each case, the judge is more flawed than the last one. It is as though God does raise up judges, but increasingly they are seen to be ineffective. You see, Gideon was a great man of God until he uh, made an ephod and began to worship uh, uh, the uh, things that he created rather than the creator. And then the whole of his family wanted to be a dynasty following him and Israel was led astray. Jephthah won great victories. He was a very unlikely character. He certainly wasn't the sort of person you would have chosen at a selection interview to be a judge of Israel. But God raised him up and used him. Yet there was always running through his character this weakness which was illustrated in the way in which he thought he could buy success by, as it were, bribing God with a sacrifice which ended up being his own daughter. And Samson, of course, is again an example of a man with a Nazarite vow who had been dedicated to God, raised up by God from his birth, and yet whose morality and whose ultimate uh, tragic death uh, seemed to deny everything uh, that God was doing through him. What I think God is saying in all this is, none of these men will ever be the answer. Stage after stage, we are shown that there is no solution for the moral and spiritual needs of his people in any human deliverer who is raised up. So on page three at the top, the theological reflections that I think we need to just note before we pass on are that the problems of judges were firstly caused because the conquest of the land was incomplete. Things start to go wrong right at the beginning of the book of Judges where they do not push the victory that God wanted to give them to its fullness. For example, Judges 1.27, Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Teanach or Dor or Ilbiam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. So when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. And that route, you see, of incomplete conquest began to penetrate. It began to grow in them. So those people who were not driven out stayed with their false gods, intermarried with Israel, began to introduce their false gods into the family pantheon of God so that Yahweh was no longer the supreme deity. There was always Yahweh alongside the Baals. And this disobedience became a thorn and a snare in their side so that the people were constantly being dragged down because there were areas of their lives, areas of their land, if you like, that were not... Uh, truly conquered. God had wanted to give them that victory, but they'd stopped short of it. That's one of the things, then, that incomplete obedience always brings dangers late, later down the road. If we think we can have a foot in God's camp and a foot in our own, we will be uh, prey to the same dangers. Uh, one of the first things you learn about boating is that you need to have two feet in the boat or two feet on the bank. You cannot do the splits forever. And it's true spiritually, isn't it? Israel had to learn it. We have to learn it. Secondly, chapter 17 to 21. Terrible stories, which we can't dwell on, thankfully, tonight. They're horrific stories. But they show how low the religious and moral life of the people sank. By the time you get to the end of the book, the nation is virtually at civil war. And you have disintegration on every side because 
people are not obeying the word of the Lord. And thirdly, the reason, which is spelt out several times in the book, but particularly right at the end there in 2125, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. So you have God's people in God's place. Verse 24 of chapter 21 says, at that time the Israelites left that place, went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. They're in the land. They've got their bit of the land, each tribe, each clan. God's people in God's place, but not under God's rule. Everyone did as he saw fit. And the compromise at the beginning of the book led ultimately to all-out rebellion because idolatry and immorality will always breed ultimate disintegration, threatening the national security, threatening the covenant relationship on which it was based. So the land is theirs, but they're not living in the fulfillment of the Lord's blessing. So what's the answer? Well, there's no king in Israel. The answer then must be to have a king. Uh, These judges are raised up somewhat periodically. They don't seem to be the solution. So let's have a king. That's the thrust of one Samuel. Now, Samuel is introduced at the beginning of the book. He is really the last of the judges. Um, In a sense, he's uh, the completion of that process before the monarchy. And the birth narrative at the beginning of the book indicates how important he is. The fact that his birth is special, that the story is told of him being a gift from God, an answer to his mother's prayer and so on, all this is preparing the way for a special man whom God is bringing into the situation. So number one, he's the last of the judges, chapter seven. Number two, he's a prophet, chapter three. The Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel's word came to all Israel. And thirdly, he's a man of prayer, and there are several references there which underscore that. So he's a man chosen by God to be a judge, chosen by God to be a prophet, and living in relationship with God through his prayer. In the first seven chapters of the book, Israel increasingly rejects the Lord. It's a very dire picture of Israelite life. Remember how under Eli... The priests, his sons, uh, were uh, simply in it for what they could get out of it. Remember, they had many battles with the Philistines and eventually lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines and the Ark is taken away from Israel and captured in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. So things are at a very low ebb indeed. They are forfeiting the very presence of God. Eventually, of course, the Ark comes back when there is national repentance. And uh, in chapter 7, we find that there is the possibility of victory, that in chapter 7, the Philistines are defeated at Mizpah as the ark is, re- is restored and as the people renew their commitment to God. But it's the same old seesaw, that there are periods when uh, they're obedient and many times when they're not. And things are not stable, in the, although Samuel, as judge and prophet, is exercising a ministry among them. So chapters 8 to 11 are all about the beginning of the monarchy. Samuel is very displeased by the fact that they want a king. If you are now with me at 1 Samuel chapter 8, you find uh, in verse 16, um, uh, sorry, in verse 6, that Samuel is very displeased with the people. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Incidentally, isn't that an interesting text to preach on? It displeased him, so he prayed. 
we would probably say it displeased me, so I grumbled. Or I went and told somebody about it. But he prayed to the Lord. That was Samuel's um, behavior, his habitual behavior. But the beginnings of the monarchy, God says, are under his control. Verse 7, the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not, that they have re- it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now that is very significant, isn't it? In the book of Deuteronomy, the request for a king is already anticipated in Deuteronomy 17, that the people will ask for a king. And God doesn't necessarily condemn the idea, but what he does is to question the motivation. And he says, the reason they're asking for a king, you see, is not because they're fed up with you, Samuel. Don't take it personally. It's because they want a human leader rather than me. They don't believe that I will raise up the leaders they need. They don't actually want to be believing and following a God who is invisible. They want a human leader. They want a dynasty. They want a security, which all the other nations seem to have. There seem to be three motivations behind this. Firstly, their dissatisfaction. Uh, That comes out in the book of Judges quite frequently. They're dissatisfied with the religious and political uh, arrangements that are being made. They're dissatisfied about having to depend on God to raise up leaders. And the job of the king is to keep all these areas right, as all the other nations have a king. Let's have a figurehead. And yet when you look at the story of the kings of Israel and of Judah, you find that every monarch was flawed in at least one area religiously, politically, or morally, and often in all three. But it stems, too, from an insecurity, secondly. Still in chapter 8, verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel as he argued about what a king would mean to them and the disadvantages. No, they said, we want a king over us, then we'll be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Now, in Exodus, when they're made a covenant people, they're told precisely that they are not like all the other nations that they are a people belonging to God, and that they are not to rely, as the other nations do, upon their diplomatic skills and upon their earthly rulers, but upon Yahweh. So they make their request, rejecting really the Lord's kingship, not looking to him for security and defense, but looking for man. And yet I want you to see, too, that the provision of the monarchy, C, is a provision of divine mercy. 8.22. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Chapter 9, verse 16. About this time tomorrow, the Lord says, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. Now that's very much like Exodus language, isn't it? Very similar to Exodus 2 and 3. So the appointment of Saul as king, which that is talking about, is an act of divine mercy. It's a covenant reaction of a merciful God. But they've got an enormous number of lessons that they're going to learn through it. They're going to learn lessons about human inability and about the fact that they must trust God rather than trust man. God often answers prayers like that. There's a verse in Psalm 106 that says God gave them what they wanted, but he gave it to them with hardness of heart. See, sometimes if we persist in wanting something from God that is not right, he may, in his wisdom, allow us to have it in order to teach us what is really best for us and what isn't. And through a remarkable sequence of events, Samuel meets Saul and anoints him king, and in chapter 11 he wins a great victory over the Ammonites. 
But the key is actually in chapter 12, because that chapter begins with Samuel making his farewell speech and Saul now confirmed as king. And like the end of Joshua, it seems to herald the dawn of a bright new day full of possibilities. Just like Israel on the brink of the promised land had faced terrific possibilities. Their motives are unworthy, but there does seem to be hope. There is Saul there in verse 13 of chapter 12 appointed as king. Here's the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. There are the people. If you fear the Lord, verse 14, and serve and obey him and don't rebel, if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord, good. Terrific possibilities. But there is also the word of the Lord, verse 15. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel, his hand will be against you. And the proof of that in God sending uh, the storm, the thunder and rain at the time of wheat harvest, which of course was totally unknown in terms of the weather pattern, which was a way of God confirming his word through Samuel and saying, listen to this, God is in this, there is great potential both ways. And then Samuel saying to them as he ends his ministry, verse 23, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. So there's great hope. Saul is appointed king. The people are told what uh, the blessings and the cursings will be. The Lord is with them. Samuel is there to pray and to teach. But of course, from that point on, it's all downhill. And uh, Saul's failure comes out very clearly uh, in the chapters that follow 13 to 15. He disobeys God. He offers sacrifices which he shouldn't offer. He doesn't destroy the Amalekites and their flocks in chapter 15. And God is grieved and Samuel is troubled and Saul is full of excuses because he puts sacrifice above obedience And because he really rejected God as his king, so God rejects Saul ultimately as king of his people. And the sad end of that story is in chapter 15, verse 23, at the second half of the verse, 15, 23b, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So what now? Another failure. Judges failed. The first king fails. What's going to happen to this people? Is there no way out of it? No way to break this circle of disappointment? Well, lastly, over the page, we have then God's provision in David. 1 Samuel chapter 16 shows us a new king chosen by God. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him? That's a negative thing, Samuel. Don't waste your time on it. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. It's fascinating, isn't it, that Samuel, the man of prayer and the man of faith, faces the same sorts of problems as we do. Well, Lord, I don't really want to make myself a sacrifice to Saul. If I'm going to anoint somebody else as king, isn't that an act of treason? But he goes in faith, and what happens? Well, David is eventually selected, you remember. And look at verses 13 and 14. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. 
And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. So although Saul still wears the crown, and although everybody regards him as the king, as far as God is concerned, he isn't. There is a new anointed, David. And although it takes some years for that to get worked out, and David resists all the opportunities he would have had to push it ahead of God's time. Remember, he could have taken Saul's life on at least two occasions. But he will not kill the Lord's anointed. He waits God's time, knowing that he's the new king chosen by God, and waiting in the wings, as it were, for God to bring him to the throne. He spends, really, the whole of those chapters, 21 to 31, as an outlaw, but as someone who is living under the authority of his God. And many of the Psalms, of course, come from that period as he reflects upon God's faithfulness and goodness to him in the midst of all the pressures. And then eventually, Saul dies and the Davidic kingdom is established as you move into the second book of Samuel. Now, all of this is is very significant uh, in terms of the covenant and the way in which God is fulfilling his purposes. You see, the question is, how does kingship fit in with the covenant? What's the pattern of the ideal king? Well, God chooses him. The prophet anoints him, and the king receives the spirit of God coming upon him. And then God commends the king to the people by public demonstration of his being with him. The victory over Goliath, for example, and the Philistines. Now, that is all developed uh, further in the second book of Samuel, where the Davidic kingdom is established by divine decree. In chapter 5, he becomes king over Israel. In chapter 6, the ark is brought to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem becomes the capital city, David's city. And he brings the ark back into the city. And then he begins to think of... um, building a house for the ark of God. It's been brought back into Jerusalem with great joy. And also you remember the incident of Uzzah who stretched out his hand and touched the ark and was killed instantly, reminding them of the holiness of God, that the joy is mingled with fear in the presence of a, of a God of holiness. And at the end of Saul's dynasty, David begins to think that he would like to build a house for God. And in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, Uh, We have the key concept worked out. If you go to the bottom of the page for the notes now, as coffee's catching up on me, uh, you'll see there, key concept, 2 Samuel 7. He says, I want to build a house for the Lord. Here am I, living in my house, my palace in Jerusalem, and there's nowhere for the ark of God. I want to build God a house. And Nathan the prophet comes along and says, jolly good idea, David. The Lord says, yes, you do it. The Lord's with you. Uh, But then when Nathan goes home that night... Uh, God says, no, Nathan, you've got it all wrong. That is not right. Not the first time that a prophet is known to be wrong. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? 2 Samuel 7, verse 6. I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent. Whenever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, that's the function of the king, he's the shepherd, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell me, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be the shepherd of my people Israel. 
I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies. I'll make your name great, Abrahamic echoes, like the name of the greatest men of the earth. I'll provide a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them. I'm going to do it all, you see. Verse 11 at the end of the verse. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David, you're not to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you, a dynasty, the house of David. And so God then promises the closest of relationships with David and his successors. Verse 12, when your days are over, I'll raise up your offspring. He's the one who will build a house, verse 13. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now you see how that begins to point forward to the ultimate solution. It's not simply in an earthly king, any more than it was in an earthly judge or an earthly Joshua. But it is in the divine kingship which God establishes in David's line, which will be an everlasting kingdom, verse 16, a kingdom that will endure forever, a throne that will never be conquered. And so God promises to David that sort of eternal throne, that sort of everlasting dynasty. And that, of course, is why the New Testament teaches us that the Lord Jesus is great David's greater son. For what was said of the king in a limited sense as to be being the son, as it were, of, um, uh, of the Lord, and Psalm 2 picks that up, where in the kingship psalm it said, uh, today I have called you my son. All that, of course, is prefiguring the real, the only begotten son, who was to come as the great king, and the one who brings in the everlasting dynasty, the one who in himself encapsulates all the qualities of the shepherd king that no Old Testament ruler could even begin to approach. And unless we, uh, lest we should think that uh, that's exaggerating, if you go back up the page to 2 Samuel eleven twelve, the turning point is that sad story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And that fatal flaw, just like the judges, you see, begins to affect his life and his kingdom. Chapters 13 to 20 are all about rebellion from Absalom, the disintegration of the stability of the kingdom. And when we come to the summary of David's life at the end of 2 Samuel and into 1 Kings, we have reminders of the theocratic ideal that God put forward, what he wanted from a king, the way he wanted a ruler to shepherd his people, but also the record of human failure. And even a great man like David, even one whose heart was so right with God in so many ways, exhibits all the flaws of fallen humanity, just as his son Solomon does. So, although the monarchy is a move forward, a move towards the ruler, the leader, that is needed if the people of God are going to live in relationship with him and fulfill the covenant obligations, no human leader, even a David, can bring them into that, because he too is a sinner. And his life is as flawed as anyone else's. But there is hope. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And that line 
leads forward through Solomon to what lies after coffee.